Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you guys. Uh, we are in a uh, new sermon series that we started last week on the Sermon on the Mount from uh, the Gospel of Matthew. And today we're going to be looking at the passage where Jesus uses the metaphors of salt and light to describe who we are and what we have been created for. But I think in order to hear Jesus' words as he intended them, we must go back to how he began the Sermon on the Mount, to the Beatitudes. So I'm actually going to read the Beatitudes for us again this morning, and then we're going to read our passage. So you can either listen to this first part and then follow along in your order of worship, or you can read along in your pew Bibles on page 809. So this is Matthew 5, verses 1 to 16. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who persecute, who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Church, this is God's word, and it's given to us for our good. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we turn to you now, kind and strong, Mercy joined with power. We turn to you now because we, we need you to open our eyes and our ears to be able to hear what you have said to the crowds that day long ago and what you say to your church right now in this moment. Help us to see more clearly who we are and what you created us for. And Father, we pray by your spirit that you would enlighten our path. You would help us to see um, where we've been and where you are calling us to so that we might be able to receive your grace and be transformed by your word this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, every year uh, when I go to the men's retreat, I always get comments on the one accessory that I never travel without. That is the cyclone fan that I sleep with every night. 
It is huge, but it is the perfect fan. The sound that it makes is just the right tone and consistency. And as the name implies, the highest setting is really powerful. People are always like, Dave, why don't you just use an app on your phone? And I kindly think to myself, you have never tried the Cyclone fan. Because it is completely different. Now, when I fly, I make a concession and I bring along in my suitcase the Cyclone's little brother, the Vornado, a.k.a. the Tornado. And it's powerful as well. This means as I'm walking through the airport, I'm very much aware that I have one of the biggest suitcases. Now, I've I've always felt a little self-conscious about this throughout the years because I think I've always wanted to be that guy who travels to Europe with a backpack, two pair of underwear, and a journal, and that's it. But I am not that guy. But I've learned that having certain things that make me feel at home is what I need in order to help me to enjoy myself and the people around me. Now, some people call this being particular, but I'm learning to call it Dave Saucedo. And guess what? If you need lotion, I got some. You need earplugs, I have a pack and I'll gladly give you a pair. You need an extra pillow, I brought mine. You can have the hotel's extra pillow. Surprisingly, I have found that as I have owned this part of who I am, it gives me a kind of freedom, a freedom to be fully present and sometimes even care for others in more tangible ways. Now, this idea of owning who we are is at the heart of our passage this morning. In a much more profound sense than me feeling comfortable and needing a fan to sleep, Jesus is asking us to own how he has made us and what we as humans have been made for. In other words, the the Sermon on the Mount through Matthew 5 through 7 is all about our identity. And this is where we have to return again to the Beatitudes. Now, if we look at the traits that Jesus blesses in the Beatitudes, we find that they are an appropriate response to living in a world in which we experience decay and darkness and death. For example, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, to be poor in spirit is to have no illusions about our lack of ability to love as God calls us to, and to acknowledge that we are lost if God does not come down to rescue us. And so for Jesus to bless the poor in spirit is for him to say, yes, you who are poor in spirit are seeing what is true about yourselves and the world. And ironically, by acknowledging your empty hands, you are freeing them to be filled up. And when the kingdom comes, those who have, who have acknowledged their need will have been prepared to inherit a kingdom and to reign with King Jesus. And on that day, we will be humble, but we will not be poor. And so this blessing exists in the here and now, and it is also a blessing that gives us a hunger and a preview of the kingdom that is to come. In the Beatitudes, Jesus is blessing the things about the people that are standing in front of him, 
that the world calls liabilities. To hunger and thirst for righteousness, for, for justice, for rightness in the world, while living in a world in which the unjust and the cutthroat are always going to get ahead, is like carrying a knife in your heart. It's just easier not to care. But Jesus is blessing our hunger and thirst. He is saying, own it. Keep living with that hunger and thirst. He says, nurture it because in the kingdom that is coming, you will be satisfied. Now, embracing the Beatitudes will always be contrary to the world uh, that, ins- that insists, is- what-, what the world insists is true. And as one commentator puts it, those in power and the skeptics will always say, what possible influence could the people described in the Beatitudes exert in this hard, tough world? Think about it. What lasting good can be done by the poor and the meek, the mourners and the merciful, to those who try to make peace instead of flexing their muscles? What can they accomplish whose only passion is an appetite for righteousness and whose only weapon is purity of heart? Are not such people too feeble to achieve anything in this world? Well, it's evident that Jesus does not share this skepticism. Because what he says next, after describing in the Beatitudes the character of the people who belong in the kingdom is this. You are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. In the first century, salt was a big deal. Nobody was on a low-sodium diet. Salt was prized for a number of things, for seasoning, bringing out the flavor in food, for food preservation without refrigeration, right? for making barren soil suitable and richer for farming. And so when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, his audience would have heard, you are the preservers of the world. And you are the fertilizer of the world. Now, it's not as appetizing of a compliment, but it is a far more astounding statement about their worth. And notice that Jesus is not saying, this is who you ought to be. This is who you should be or who you will be once you get your act together. No, he says, church, this is who you are. You are salt. Own it. Now, this teaching assumes that Jesus' first hearers know the bigger picture of scripture the true story of the world you flip open to the opening chapters of genesis and it showed god's people why the earth needed preserving and fertilizing genesis says that in the beginning the world was formless and dark and chaos reigned and then god sent his spirit to hover over the earth bringing order and light and life and god called it good And then God made humankind and called them very good. And then he charged them to tend and nurture the creation and bring even more life and goodness. 
that is what it means to be made in the image of God, at least according to Genesis 1 and 2. That when we work, when we bring order out of chaos, when we take part in creating, we are like God. So when we see our first parents rebel, what we see is the breakdown of the order in creation. The world begins to move backwards, back towards decay and darkness, back towards the formlessness and void for which it started. And that's why the Apostle Paul can now write, the whole creation groans as it waits for the day that God will restore the world to what it was created to be. And so to be salt, to be preservers and fertilizers, means that we ourselves are restored to the vocation that was given to our first parents to cultivate, to tend, to bring more life and goodness into the world. And church, to the extent to which we own our longing for the kingdom and allow Jesus to grow in us the character of the Beatitudes, we will see our saltiness do its work in the world. Now, as I look out, I would venture to guess that that we have all, everyone in this room, have experienced moments where we have tasted the salt that Jesus is talking about here at one point or another in our lives. I would venture to guess that, that most of us would not be here today if someone hadn't been salt in our lives. And for me, I think about the families from my church when I was a teenager who fed me, who were happy to have me at their table, who treated me like their own children. That there were people along the way who mentored me, encouraging me and even speaking hard truths to me, and they taught me how to love better. And they taught me how to see myself clearly and how to forgive myself when I messed up consistently. I think of all the friends and the faces that come to mind who genuinely prayed for me and the people for whom I sense God's delight in me. This goodness, this grace, this generosity of spirit has given me a taste of God's own love and drawn me towards him and his kingdom. And this has always been the identity that Jesus means for his people. For the earliest Christians who read Matthew's gospel... Being salt looked like choosing to stay at home and nursing the sick while fleeing, rather than fleeing uh, during epidemics that killed one-fourth to one-third of the population in some areas. They knew that their faith cost them something uh, in the midst of persecution and in the midst of suffering. And this was the, one of the many things that caught the attention of the watching world. And it resulted in both persecution and rapid growth of the church. Now, as I look out again, and I know most of you, I'm encouraged by how all of you here at Covenant live out your identity as salt in the places that you find yourself. That you genuinely pray for one another. That you sacrificially give your time and your money for, for the good of those who have less than you. 
that you do really, really hard, humble work to understand your own brokenness in order to repent and repair broken relationships. And many of you make meals for those who are sick and have meals together to intentionally build friendships that allow you to help bear one another's burdens during the difficult times. And in your jobs, you teach and you build things. You mentor and you heal. And you, and you, and you do that work with such kindness and integrity. And then you go home and you work to treat your family with the loving kindness with which your Heavenly Father treats you. And when you fail, you confess and return to God for forgiveness and new mercies for the day. Church, what I want us to see is that this is fertilizer for the world. This will will grow beautiful things in places that have only experienced barrenness. The world needs it. The world needs you to be who you have been created to be, to be salt in the world. Because that is who you are. Now Jesus continues in verse 13b. He says, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out, trampled under people's feet. Now, our modern table salt, sodium chloride, is pretty stable. But the salts of Jesus' day were made of different minerals and less pure, and they could lose their chemical properties that made them salty over time. And it makes me think, we are, and we ought to be painfully aware that the church has often failed in the present and throughout history in bringing life and goodness into the world. We have often failed. And also we know that it's possible to look at the decay of the world and go into despair or move into cynicism that Jesus can't possibly make a difference. He can't possibly do anything in our broken, messed up city. But when we go to that place, Jesus gives us a chance to repent and to turn back to him. And he asks us and he invites us again. He says, will we, will you live out your identity as people that he has rescued? Will we expect him to use our gifts and redeem our scars to counteract evil and death and decay that we see all around us? Will we ask him to do it and show up in expectation? Now, the second metaphor that Jesus uses in our passage parallels the first. Jesus says in verse 14, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. And in the same way, let your light shine before others so so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now that image of a city on a hill, a city on a hill is a strong city. That's a strategic defensive position. 
Because even in the darkest night, it is not hidden. Its light actually makes its presence more real than anything else out there in the dark. And again, Jesus isn't saying, be something other than you are. Act like salt and light. No, he's saying, be exactly who you are. Kingdom people in the places that you find yourselves. And when you do, the light that you all create together will be impossible to miss. It will be like a city set on a hill. And I think to the extent that we are able to embrace who Jesus is and what he has created us to be, there will be something about the way that we live together, something about the way that we talk to and about one another, something about the way that we do our work, and about the way that we relate to the broken world that is just transformative. It is like light piercing into the darkness. And that something, Jesus says here, is our good works, performed by, for, the, for the sake of love. And because the source of our goodness and love is our Father in heaven, whatever good we do, we reflect his glory like the moon reflects the light of the sun. Now, if you never venture out of the city, you probably don't see the moon very much. But the moon itself, especially a full summer moon, is just captivating. It is captivating. And so I remember a time when my son Nathaniel was really young and he loved the book Goodnight Moon. But he hardly, he hardly ever actually saw the moon. Um, because he went to bed so early and because the... Uh, the city washes out the night sky. And so I remember uh, a time when he was totally amazed when he saw the moon for the first time. We were camping. We, were, we had a fire, and it was, you know, pitch dark besides the fire. And we'd look up, and there was this full moon glowing. And I will never forget him shouting loud in his toddler voice again and again, The moon! The moon! Daddy, the moon! And yet... As significant as it is, we know that the moon only reflects the greater light of the sun. But it doesn't detract from its glory that all of its light is a reflection of the sun. Reflecting that light is what it does. It is an essential part of being the moon. I don't need to tell the moon to reflect the light. It just does, and it is. And likewise, our task is to learn to let others see the glory of God in us, what God has created us to be, and what will happen is they will respond in awe and glorifying Him. And I think what's beautiful is our collective light shines brightest when we each individually discover and own who God has made us to be and the gifts that he has given us. And church, I don't need to tell you this, but I am. We need others around us to help us do this, to speak blessing over our beauty, just as Jesus spoke blessing over the crowd that day. I can't think of a greater privilege than this. 
to be able to name and call forth the good in one another, to be able to say, I see Jesus in this part of who you are. It's unmistakable. I also think that it is something unique to the church that the glory of one person doesn't detract from the glory of the others. That is to be what is unique about the church, that the glory of one person doesn't detract from the glory of the others, but rather like salt, we bring out the, 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 the flavor in other people. And if we believe that God has created us in his image and he is restoring each of us to the glory and vocation for which we were meant, it follows that we all have a place and a job in his kingdom. And so I can see and I can bless the beauty that I see in you without envy because I know that I have a place and I have my own beauty. And can you imagine if we as the church lived free from envy, trying to take and consume what belongs to someone else, what a light that would be to the world. And so let me ask you, do you know what your beauty is? Do you know what your glory is? That is what God has given you. Do you know how God has made you uniquely to, to shine light and to bless the world? There are things built into us, even the scars that we experience, that can change the world if we let them. Jesus wants to bless those things, and our response must be to bless them as well. And yet I know that there are a lot of other voices that stand against it that are much louder than the voice of God. That often our unique beauty is the thing about us that the world has assaulted and shamed. And so what about you that is presently hidden is meant to reflect the kingdom? What do you need to own and bless because that part of you is to be salt and light to this world? I think some of us need to own and bless our bodies. Our world heaps so much shame onto our bodies, but they are God's good creation and he will redeem them as surely as he redeems our own souls. It is your body that works, that serves, that comforts. It is your eyes that, that show someone that you are listening and that you really care. Your hands are what makes a meal that, meal that nurtures your friends or families. So how does Jesus want you right now in this moment to bless your body and for you to own it and bless it too? I think some of us need to bless our perceived neediness or loneliness. Because our world tells us that we should be fine on our own and not to need others too much. And can you bless the poverty of spirit that says, I need care. I need deep friendship. I long for connection. 
Can you let Jesus bless that longing and own and bless it yourself and hold out expectation that he is at work in you? And I think many of us need to bless and own the gifts that we have been given that feel like they're inadequate. Especially inadequate as we compare them to the other people around us. That our unique unique gifts were given to us purposefully and are meant to be used to bless others. They were not just given to you for you. They were given to you to bless. Not snuffed out because we think that others' gifts are better. And so what are the gifts that you are currently hiding under a basket that Jesus wants to bring out into the open so that it shines his light and his goodness into the world? So let me end by saying this. Um, As we answer Jesus' call to be who we were made to be, salt and light, I think it's encouraging to begin to remember that the crowds hearing Jesus' sermon that day and even his closest friends and his disciples still couldn't figure Jesus out quite yet. They didn't fully grasp who he was and what he came to do. And they certainly didn't have a clue what, they, what the journey would lead them to. But Jesus says to them, and I think he says to each one of us this morning, come to me. Come to me as you are Seek first my kingdom and watch. Watch what I will do for you, in you, and through you for your Father's glory. Because church, you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you. Thank you for these words that don't just remind us who we are, they are an invitation for us to own who we are and to be salt and light into the places in which you have placed us, in our families, in our work, in whatever places that we find ourselves, in school and in our neighborhoods. And Father, we pray that by your Spirit you would help us to just own that and to live out of that And when we don't, Father, that we would return to Jesus, whose arms are wide open, as we come poor in spirit, that he fills us up so that we might in turn bless others as we have been blessed. Father, help us to go now and not just remember that, but to own it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.